Okay, let's turn, please, to Romans 11 tonight. Romans 11. You came. I didn't know if anybody would come. Usually people chicken out because of the snow, but. Romans chapter 11. And let's take a couple moments of silent preparation. The weatherman's here so we can get started. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege of meeting together with like-minded believers. We're mindful of the verse which says that you are the living God, the Savior of everyone, especially of those who believe. And so we thank you for the extraordinary privilege of having faith, faith that you have kindled, faith that you have evoked in us, the means of understanding the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ and the universal impact of the cross of Christ. We thank you that by faith we recognize that we have already been swept up into an apocalyptic movement of God, an apocalypse not of destruction but of salvation and of destruction only of the suprahuman powers that hold creation enslaved. So we thank you for this opportunity. We pray that you'll open our eyes as usual in order to observe wonderful things out of your word. We ask it in the name of our Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Tonight I want to consider the soteriology of Romans 9 through 11 first. And by soteriology, we know that that means salvation. It comes from the Greek word sozo, which means to save. Soter, which means savior, as in Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. Grace of God has appeared. Salvation, soteria, for all human beings. Romans 9 through 11 as a section, it's an identifiable section in Romans, but it should never be taken, as many do and many have, as merely a parenthesis in Romans. It's been taught that way before, and it should not have been. It is a soteriological piece throughout. It expounds the salvation of Jesus Christ, and it ends up, in 1132, in that salvation being a universal expression of God's mercy, and in 1136, of all beings in all time returning to God, returning to God. So Romans 9 through 11 is definitely an identifiable section in Romans, and however, it's not just parenthetical. In fact, it's one of the climactic parts of Romans. There's a remarkable continuity with Romans 1 through 8 into Romans 9 through 11. And there's a marked fluidity into Romans chapter 12 through 16 from this section. Romans 9 opens with Paul expressing his chronic concern for his people, whom he calls my relatives, my kin, in terms of mutual physical descent from Abraham and tribal membership in Israel. From this, I would take this principle. Love is chronic concern. Love, in its very characteristic, is a chronic concern. But love also believes all things. Love hopes all things, bears all things. And never fails. So its concern never moves into the realm of a neurotic anxiety, but only a concern born of love. So love is chronic concern. 
Romans 10 opens up with Paul's specific concern for salvation. The word soteria once again. The salvation of what he might call ethnic Israel. There's a difference between ethnic Israel and eschatological Israel. It's notable in Romans 10 how Paul fans out the concentrated concepts of the thesis verses in Romans. Those concentrated concepts of Romans 1, 1 through 4, Romans 1, 16 to 17, where we find the main thesis of the gospel. Especially regarding terms like righteousness, salvation, faith, or faithfulness, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Moreover, it's remarkable in Romans 10, we've already been through it, that Paul concludes with all of creation having heard and having effectively believed already the gospel. Because he sees that all creation has heard and believed inside of Jesus Christ's faithfulness. Or we could say Jesus Christ's faithfulness applies to all. Romans 11.26 declares the eschatological salvation of Israel in its totality. Israel in its entirety saved. And that means diachronically. Diachronic is usually a word that has to do with language and how language changes over time. But if we apply it like Moltmann does, diachronic means literally from dia plus chronos, We mean throughout all of time. When Jesus Christ comes from heaven, his transfiguration of creation, all of created reality, will not only be universally spatially, but universally diachronically throughout all times. It will take all of creation and all of its times and transfigure it, all of human beings and all of their times and epochs of history through resurrection and transfigure humanity. He will give righteousness where it's needed in perpetrators of evil. He will give justice and satisfaction to those who have been the oppressed in history. And this will be the effect of the cross. It's remarkable then that Paul concludes with all of creation having heard and effectively believed in as much as Jesus Christ believed as he encompassed all of creation in all of its times. Romans 11.26 declares again the eschatological salvation of Israel in toto. Despite the evident lack of salvation in Israel's history, there's a distinction that we have to make between history and eschatology. History reveals only a remnant being saved. Eschatology reveals that that remnant was representative of the whole being saved of Israel. So that salvation occurs is the fact of the gospel. The salvation of Israel, and this is Paul's point, occurs within the horizon of the salvation of the totality of the nations or the Gentiles. In Romans 12, 11, we have mathematics. We have exegetical math. We have pleroma used twice. Pleroma means the totality of a thing. P-L-E-R-O-M-A. Pleroma. And he has the pleroma of Israel in Romans eleven twelve through 15. Then he has the pleroma plus Pleroma of the nations or all Israel. And when you add simply the Pleroma or the totality of Israel with the totality of the Gentile nations, you have the totality of humanity. Paul is doing something that's extraordinary here and rarely seen in commentaries. He is bringing to bear the pressure of a universally saving Christ upon walls that have been erected between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Walls rooted in bias that's rooted in something that I'm going to be teaching on and introducing slowly. A thing called hyperephania. Hyper 
Ephania. That's a kind of an English anglicized form of a word that huper ephenos, which means to show oneself or to exhibit oneself higher than others. It's a kind of arrogant pride that's at the base of all kinds of biases, including Christian biases, we might call them. And so the salvation of Israel occurs within a horizon of universal saving significance of Christ, within the salvation of all humanity. And that in turn, in the, in the horizon of the transformation of all creation, the liberation of all created reality in all of its times. So it's a universal restoration and it's a diachronic restoration. All that has ever been a being in all of history is restored and transfigured. God wouldn't do anything less than that in my view. Why should he? He's God. So the things that this, this is demonstrated incidentally in Ephesians 1, 9 through 11, the soteriological or saving summing up of all things in Christ. Ephesians 1, 9 through 11 compared with Romans 16, 25 to 27. So all of Israel is to be gloriously saved within the context or the horizon of the return of all things to God. To him, all things return. Romans eleven thirty six, another climactic verse. So the things we learn about the gospel in Romans are basically three. One, it's God's announcement of very good news that is all about his son. Two, it is perceived, this gospel, perceived and experienced even now as the power of salvation to those who believe or to those in whom faith is elicited or created. And those are the ones, and those are among you, you are among those, in the category of the word especially in 1 Timothy 4.10b, the living God is the savior of everyone, especially of those who believe. We'll be giving much more definition to that in future teachings. Third, the, the gospel is power for salvation. It's power for salvation will be perceived and experienced by all of humanity and all of created reality. This, of course, we've looked at not only in Romans 11.36, where all things are by him, through him, and to him, all things universally and diachronically. And that's what makes Paul get pretty excited. But we also learned it from Isaiah 40 in verse 5, in which all flesh together will see, or horao means experience, the salvation of God, Yeshua. Jesus as the salvation of God. In the first 10 verses of Romans, then, the question of God's abandonment of Israel has been addressed. We've discovered that the presence of a vestige, also known as a Roman, a remnant, a vestige of Israelis in Elijah's time who had not genuflected to the God of this age, otherwise known as Baal, otherwise more pronounced properly as Baal, 7,000 men, representative of a remnant. And I want you to follow this because this goes all the way through Romans. We discovered that the presence of a remnant of Israelis in Elijah's time who have not genuflected to the God of this age corresponds to a remnant according to the election of grace in Paul's time. Israelis who believed in Paul's time. And that this remnant, as it's called, is representative of the eschatological entirety or the whole of Israel. And not just an indication that God intends to save only a small percentage of the Jewish people, but all the descendants of Abraham. So it's precisely at this point when we kicked off the year 2019 with what I call Operation Epsilon goes a little past Delta. It is precisely at this point that we began to see the necessity for a differentiation of consciousness with regard to history and eschatology, distinguishing in our conscious minds the difference between history and eschatology. What has gone on in history 
is the salvation of a small percentage of ethnic Israel. What has gone on and what will be universally manifested eschatologically is the salvation of all of ethnic Israel. In fact, it has occurred. The atomic bomb analogy. You see a picture of an atomic bomb exploding. And at ground zero, it explodes. The mushroom cloud goes up. And then the power of that, invisible power of that, fans out in a limited way. But think of this now as the omnipotent love of God exploding at ground zero at Calvary. And the invisible power that comes from that is a saving impact, not a destructive one. It is not a limited impact, but an infinite impact. We have already seen all of salvation has occurred at ground zero in the crucified Messiah whom God raised from the dead. It's done according to Revelation 21.6. It's done according to John 19.30. It's a done deal according to Psalm 22.31. The new creation of all things is done at ground zero, but it has yet to be manifested universally throughout the universe and throughout all times. That's the picture of the atomic bomb analogy, which I just kind of came up with off the cuff Sunday. So what's gone on and what is universally to be universally manifested eschatologically is the salvation of all of ethnic Israel. But that has already occurred at ground zero in the crucified and risen Jesus in order to be manifested in its totality when he comes. Because when he comes, he consummates the universal diachronic restoration of all things and all created beings. Now, this sounds a little theological and it sounds a little heavily theological, But I think we have to move from here, at least I'm going to, in what I write, if not preach, into a kind of a theological move in order to reveal the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ and the reconciliation of God and mankind, which is already a reality in a person named Jesus. This transforms your life. It transforms your thinking, transforms your view of history and your view of all humanity the view of your circumstances, and it allows you to endure and stand with the full armor of God in the midst of the arena of contention, which is this present turn of the ages. We live in the clashing juncture of two ages, the age that is called the evil age, which God has invaded with two divine expeditions, the mission of the Son followed by the mission of the Spirit, and This evil age then is clashing with the age of Messiah and the new creation, which has come about in the Christ event. We live in the clashing juncture of the ages. We live in a time of an apocalypse of the righteousness of God. And we live in a time that God is intending to destroy not humanity or creation, but the powers that have enslaved it. And that's what we're dealing with in Romans 8 also on Sunday mornings. So consider this for a moment, that consequently, as a consequence of this, in history, Israel's stumbling and falling, Israel stumbled and fell. All throughout history in Israel, even right after the glorious deliverance through the Red Sea, they began to offer sacrifices to demons in the desert. They did all these terrible things that Paul outlines in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And he says it's for our warning and our teaching and our instruction upon whom the end of the ages, the clashing ages has come in 1 Corinthians 10:11. So he says, consider Israel katasarka, Israel after the flesh and the sacrifices they made to other gods, to other Elohim that were not gods at all, but demonic beings, fallen beings. The climax of Israel's stumbling and falling occurred historically in A.D. 70, as we know. So consequently, however, Israel's stumbling and falling, as Paul metaphorically puts it, they stumbled and fell, 
does not mean that Israel will not get back up again, as anti-Semitism assumes. Anti-Semitism assumes that God has forsaken Israel, so it doesn't matter how human beings treat them. In fact, we should treat them like we think God treated them, as cast off. That was a mentality that ended up in a place called Auschwitz in the last century. And this kind of anti-Semitism has already reared its head, and I only have to watch the news news five minutes to see it rear its head in a member of the United States House of Representatives. And that's dangerous stuff. It's toxic. It's infectious. It is a kind of thing that brings down a culture, a civilization, a nation, a generation. Resantamon. And so... Paul says that their stumbling and falling does not mean that they won't get back up again. Why? Because the Lord is able to make them stand. Hasn't he done that for you? Have you ever fallen and stumbled, spiritually speaking, in your Christian life? Then why are you standing now? God was able to make you stand, as Romans 14.4 says. In fact, Paul spends one of his famous and precious terms that he uses meganoito and it's this m-e and then g-e-n-o-i-t-o exclamation let's do a spanish exclamation point on either side meganoito colonel theme used to uh i used to get a chuckle out of he used to interpret it as hell no but it's that's pretty accurate because it's the most emphatic negation you can possibly have Absolutely not. The thought is unthinkable. Meganoito. They haven't fallen so as not to get up again, have they? Meganoito. Paul says this about 13 times in Romans. So he spends these tremendous negations very carefully. He uses one in Romans 11.1 and again in Romans 11.11. Then he stacks metaphor on top of metaphor to fortify his point. He goes into an expression of the first fruits in the offering of the meal offering. And he says that the first batch or the first part of the batch sanctifies the whole of the batch. Then he goes into the root and the branches of an olive tree. And he says the root sanctifies the branches because the root is holy. So are the branches because the first fruits are holy. So is the whole batch. And this goes back to the remnant. Because the remnant is holy, so is the whole of Israel. It represents and embodies the whole of Israel and God's faithfulness to Israel. Remember, the election exists by pure, uncontingent grace, not by works. If it's by works, then it's no longer grace. And works would no longer be works. There would no longer be a contrast. So because it's uncontingent grace, the remnant of an election by the grace of God is a depiction of the whole of Israel being saved. And he goes in to express this also in both the root and the first fruits in terms of metaphors to express it. The holiness of the first fruits sanctifies the whole batch and the holiness of the root sanctifies the branches of the olive tree, which symbolizes Israel. And so it shows the ultimate eschatological Christological salvation of the entirety of Israel. Paul is doing this every which way he possibly can, stacking metaphor upon figure, upon scripture, upon scripture, to show the universality of God's salvation, to apply it to prejudices and biases among Gentile Christians against Jewish Christians and Jewish Christians against Gentile Christians, that God is for us all, and if he's for us all, why are you against each other? Romans 8.31 is the heart of the heart of the heart of the center of the dead center bullseye X-ring of Romans. God is for us, and he freely gave his son up for us all, all, 77 times in Romans, just for your, if you're interested. So of critical importance about this thing, we're going to read about it, not tonight, but later on, we're going to read about the if the 
first fruits are holy, then so is the whole batch of dough. If the roots of the tree called Israel is holy, then so are the branches, even the branches that have been temporarily broken off. But listen carefully to this. Paul chooses the word first fruits and root as two metaphors, which really is depicting something that's concealed to be discovered. And you know what that is? Jesus Christ and him crucified. Because ultimately the word first fruits is used of Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians 15.20 and 15.23. In the most far-reaching eschatological passage in the scripture, 1 Corinthians 15.20 to 28, that ends with God being all in all. That's God being in all of creation, all of creation being in God. It's called a universal perichoresis. It is in that passage that Jesus Christ is called the first fruits in resurrection. The first fruits is the first part of a harvest, the sample of a harvest, and the harvest is a universal harvest. Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead portrays him, and he is actually the portrayal of the transfigured new creation, what it's going to be like, like him, resurrected, incorruptible, immortal, full of joy and liberty and happiness, transformation and love. That's Jesus Christ. And so not only that, but the root ultimately that bears both Jews and Gentiles is Jesus Christ. Because the scripture in the last time Jesus speaks about himself and therefore speaks in a self-designation. Like in, we have 22 of them in John. I am the light of the world. I am the true vine. I am he. When you lift me up, you will know that I am he, the Yahweh of God, the God who is love. In Revelation 22:16, he says, I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. The bright morning star means that he is the first in resurrection because again in 1 Corinthians 15 41 the resurrection is like the stars in the sky differing in magnitude from one star to another and that means that Jesus Christ the bright morning star is the brightest luminary in the resurrection celestial demonstration of God's glory. And so we have both root and first fruits referring to the fact that Jesus Christ is the one that embodies all creation, not just a remnant embodying the whole of Israel, not just the roots bearing the branches, Israel bearing the branches that were broken off and the branches that were grafted in called the Gentiles, but Jesus Christ being the foundation that supports all of created reality and embraces it and embodies it. This is the message. This is the message I was given 47 years ago, January 23rd, 1972. And it's taken 47 years to finally get to what I was given to teach that day. And I'll be bringing that close. When we get close to the 23rd, I think it's going to happen on a Wednesday. We might even get some things done. But, so of critical importance is the fact that both root and first fruits found in Romans eleven sixteen are titles given to Jesus Christ himself, the bright morning star, the obvious reference to his resurrection from the dead as the first fruits of a universal resurrection harvest and the root and the offspring of David, both the root of David and the offspring of David, which is another way of Paul saying, Jesus Christ, God's son, who is what? According to the flesh, the son or descendant of David, but according to power by resurrection, the son of God, the son of David, the son of God. Now, I decided to take a little bit of a digression here and look at the Lucan genealogy. Luke's genealogy in Luke chapter 3 is extraordinarily messianic. All of the genealogies in the Gospels are messianic genealogies. They show the physical or hereditary descent to the Messiah, the seed of the woman, the seed of David, the seed of Abraham, 
the seed which is one, which is Christ, which envelops all humanity in Adam in a saving way. So when in Luke, the Lucan genealogy, in Luke 3.31, Jesus is called the son of David. He's identified as the descendant of David or the son of David. Remember the blind man on the side of the road as Jesus was moving through Israel. And he said, son of David, have mercy on me. He recognized him as Messiah without even having physical sight. And so in Luke 3.31, in the genealogy leading to Jesus' birth, a son of David, he's called. In Luke 3.34, going backwards, he's called the son of Abraham. Luke 3.34. But in Luke 3.38, he's called son of Adam, son of God. If we follow this progression, Adam is the son of God. And Jesus, the son of God, capital S, is also the son of Adam. So when you look at the genealogies, the point that's being made is if Jesus is the son of David, he embodies all that genealogical line, the royal line of David. If he's the son of Abraham, it means that he embodies all the people that descended from Abraham. That's called Israel. But if he is the son of Adam, then he embodies all that descended from the first man, Adam. So he embodies all of humanity in a saving way, savingly. As Adam was the bearer of human destiny into condemnation resulting in death, Jesus Christ becomes the second Adam, the final Adam, the last Adam who bears the destiny of all humanity unto justification and life. This is what Paul teaches clearly in Romans 5.18 and 19. So if we follow the progression of the Lucan messianic genealogy, it's particularly fascinating in the climax where the son of Adam and son of God are juxtaposed. And there are many other startling reasons I wish I could develop tonight, but I can't. As the root that bears the royal genetic line of David. Jesus is also the root that bears Israel. Israel in turn is the root that bears the Gentiles. And that's why Paul says, hey, Gentiles, curb your enthusiasm. Curb your enthusiasm where you say things like we were grafted in and Israel was broken off. Branches were broken off so that we could be grafted in. This is a seed of anti-Semitism, but it's a triumphal arrogance on the part of the Gentiles. Paul wants to curb that enthusiasm because it's a triumphalism. It's hyperephania. It's wanting to show themselves above the group of their Jewish Christian brothers, even as some of the Jewish Christian brothers wanted to show themselves above their Gentile brothers through circumcision and through following the scruples of the Mosaic law. Paul's smashing both of these walls around the people of God and the divisions so that he can make a unity so that when he gets to Rome, there'll be a unified whole so that they can move him on to Spain where he will missionize and evangelize. Spain, which were called barbarians by the Jews and the Greeks. Every group's got to call some other group by something that's inferior to themselves. If they have hyperephania, it's found in Romans one thirty. It's found in Second Timothy three two. It's found in Mark seven twenty one to twenty three, and other places. It's a very key word. It's more key. It's more of a root of bias than even Rasantamont is. We'll explain it. Might even do some of that Sunday. So, as the root that bears the royal genetic line of David, Jesus is also the root that bears Israel. Israel, in turn, is the root that bears the Gentiles. Paul said to the Gentiles, you don't bear the root, the root bears you. And that means You're here because Israel came first. 
You're saved because salvation comes from the Jews, as Jesus said in John 4.23. The root bears you. But Israel and the Gentiles ought to know that Christ is the root that bears both Israel and the Gentiles by bearing them up. He's the true atlas that bears up the whole world. And like the song says, God's got the whole world in his hand. So then. In 1 Corinthians 15, 20 and 23, in the context of the farthest reaching eschatological passage in the Bible, ending with God being all in all, Jesus Christ is called the first fruits of resurrection. In the same chapter, resurrection is likened to the stars or the celestial luminaries with their various magnitudes of brightness, 1 Corinthians 15, 41. So the point that's hidden in Romans 11 about the first fruits and the root is that Jesus Christ and him crucified is the embodiment of all Israel and all the nations. It's a universal salvation, if, you're, if you care to know the theme here. It's called universal salvation, if you care to know Paul's theme in Romans 9 through 11. You say, well, how come other people don't see it? Because there's not only insight, but there's also the oversight of insight. And there's also, worse than that, the flight from insight. If this doctrine is true, then I've got to admit I was wrong. And if I admit I was wrong, that's a terrible attack on my egocentricity. That's exactly the case in many cases, especially with preachers. Oh, how they hold on to their preconceptions. And their cognitive inflexibility. Cognitive inflexibility is fine if you're laying hold of a truth and holding on to that truth and you're inflexible about it. But cognitive inflexibility can also be a stubbornness that doesn't allow for a development in doctrine so that you can see the grace of God further than out your window and expand into all the universe, which is what we're seeing. And I, I just say to God, I'm open. I'm open to you. I'm open to you. And so he keeps pouring out insights. It's his grace. So this is how I came to understand the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ. When I realized that soteriology or the study of salvation, soteriology is Christology. That Christ himself, Jesus is his name, is the savior of the world. Jesus is from Yahoshua, which means Yahweh saves. Yahweh, as the very essence of his being and act, is a savior. He can't be other than for us. There's God and there's God for us, and he's one. There is no God that is not the God for all of his creation. He's all in. God is always all for all of his creation. God always stands against the forces and powers of this world that are superhuman and intend to oppress and distort and paralyze his creation. He did not come to destroy half of humanity in the lake of fire. He did not come to dissolve and destroy the universe. He came to transform and transfigure the universe and save the whole of humanity. And that is what apocalypse means. The apocalypse of God's love found in a crucified Christ and a raised Christ. Soteriology and Christology are one. And this is how I came to understand the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ. Christology is soteriology. In such verses as Matthew 121, the angel said, his name shall be called Jesus, Yeshua, because he will save his people from their sins. Who are his people? We have to ask. His people are all the descendants of Abraham through Isaac. Yeah, you're right. That's true. But his people are also all the descendants of Adam. And this is why Luke's genealogy calls Jesus the son of Adam and the son of God. Jesus descended from David according to physical heredity, to the genealogical chart, according to the flesh. He descended from David. Going back further, he descended from Abraham, 
the seed of Abraham. Going back further, all the way back, he is the son of Adam. So tracing his genealogical descent all the way back, and that's exactly what Paul does. In Romans 1, he talks about Jesus being the seed of David. In Romans 4, he talks about him being the seed of Abraham. In Romans 5, he talks about him being the second Adam. And so he graduates here and says not only does he embody the royal line of Israel as the king of kings, he embodies all the people that descend from Abraham, which is ethnic Israel, and he embodies all the people that descended from Adam, which is everybody. And through one man's disobedience, the whole became condemned under sin. Through one man's obedience, Jesus Christ, to the death of the cross, all were given justifying life. Why is there resistance to this? My question is, why did I resist it? I don't know how I could have resisted it, but it's, I'll tell you why. If God doesn't give the insight, you ain't going to get it. You can browbeat a friend all day long. You can take my Christmas card that's now in print, and, and I hope you do. I hope you give it to a friend or a family member if they're interested. But that's not going to convince them even though it's one of the most brilliant depictions of universal saving grace of Christ. No, I'm only kidding. But no matter, no matter how you construct it and how you do it as a doctrine, it won't convince people unless God grants the illumination and God grants the enlightenment, unless God gives the insight. And so I've got to be relaxed about this thing. It's not up to me to give the insight. As John Wayne said, it's my responsibility what I say, but it's not my responsibility what you understand. So, that's a paraphrase of John Wayne. So, if you don't like it, if John Wayne was God, he'd say, get up, pilgrim, or I'll help you up with the toe of my boot. But God isn't that way. Well, not all the time. He's helped me up with the toe of his sandal from one time or another. Going back further, then, listen carefully. If you trace his genealogical descent all the way back, he's the son of Adam. But he's not like Adam. The first man, Adam, came from the earth. He's earthly, and he's a living soul. That means he's got life within himself that he can't give to others. The second man from heaven became a life-giving spirit. By his resurrection from the dead, he gave life to all human beings in all of their times. He gave it diachronically and universally. Therefore, he's a life-giving spirit. The first man, Adam, is a living soul. Jesus likened that in John 12 to a seed that abides alone on top of the earth. That's Adam. He's a living soul. He's on top of the earth. He's living. But he says, unless a seed goes into the ground and dies, it remains alone on top of the earth like Adam. Christ is the seed that went into the ground and died. Or we could say died and went into the ground. And came up in resurrection and bore much fruit. Much fruit is always an understatement for the universal salvation that Jesus Christ won in his resurrection. When he said, this is my blood, which is shed for many, he was talking about all. Because he said, the Son of Man did not come to this world to serve or to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that many means all, because Paul said in 1 Timothy 2.6, the righteous one, Jesus Christ, the only mediator between God and man, gave himself as a ransom for all. Many equals all. Paul gets that all equals many and that many equals all. In Romans 5.18, he calls it all receive justifying life. In 5.19, Jesus is the justifier of many. Many equals all. They're interchangeable. And so if a seed remains on top of the earth, it's the first Adam. It's living, but it doesn't do anybody else any favors. But if the seed, the second Adam, dies and goes into the ground, it comes up in resurrection, bears much fruit. It not only helps others, it's a life-giving spirit to all humanity. For as in Adam, all die, because Adam can't help you. He's a living soul. 
But in Christ, all will be made alive because he's the seed of the woman, the seed of Adam, the seed of Abraham, the seed of David. Who went into the ground and died and came up as a life-giving spirit. Where, to whom does he give life? I read all in 1 Corinthians 15, 22. That's what John 12, 24 means. When the Greeks wanted wisdom and they came and said, we would see Jesus, that's the answer he gave them. Well, go back and tell them that a seed remains on the top of the earth. It remains alone. If it goes into the ground and dies, it brings forth fruit. Can you imagine one of the disciples going back and I'm supposed to tell you this, Greeks. Can you imagine them? They're going to just quit and go get a Greek pizza. Or they're going to think about it. And when Christ raised from the dead, those Greeks that came to Jerusalem to see Jesus will really see who Jesus is. They wouldn't have seen him if they'd seen him. They only saw him by the words he gave to them and what it would mean in his death and resurrection. So there are many good reasons why Paul treats the narrative of Abraham in Romans 4 first. And then do you notice that he graduates into a narrative of Adam in Romans 5? In that gradual development of his argument, the apostle shows that salvation is revealed by Jesus embodying not only all of the children of Abraham, Israel, but all the children of Adam in his death, all humanity, burial and resurrection, his death, burial and resurrection, meaning Israel, all Israel is saved. You want to argue with that? Then argue with Paul in Romans eleven twenty six, and he'll call you a name proud but all of Israel is saved the pleroma of Israel and the pleroma of the nations equals the all of humanity and so on a practical level what does this mean this entire argument serves to speak peace where there is no peace Psalm 85 a Yahweh speaks peace to his people what's he doing through Romans Speaking peace where there's agitation, stilling a storm of agitation and rasantamon, prejudices and biases, Jews versus Gentiles, Jewish Christians against their Gentile brothers, Jewish Christians that have listened to a missionary opponent of Paul that's basically sidelined Jesus Christ's significance and said, yeah, he died for the past sins of Israel, but you got to be circumcised, you Gentiles, and you got to fulfill all the mandates of the law, including calendrical observances of days and feasts and festivals, and you got to eat kosher, and you got to do this and that. And all that did was sponsor a pride that Paul is intending to smash here. So on a practical level, this entire universal saving argument doesn't just exist on itself alone. It serves to speak peace to the saints in Rome and still the storm between Gentile and Jewish Christians there by curbing this hyperephania. Hyperephania. That's how I'm going to pronounce it because it's more like a, that's how you'd hear a psychiatrist express it. Hyperephania, which... I'm going to introduce by just subtly introducing the word until we get to a full definition. The hyperphenia of the group of Gentile Christians who view their Jewish brethren through the lens of anti-Semitism. A very subtle thing. They view their brethren, Jewish Christians, through the lens of anti-Semitism on the one hand because they assume that their Jewish brethren have come from a people that God has abandoned. And so they glory in their circumcision, the Jews do, some of them, and some of the Gentiles in their uncircumcision. What does Paul say about it in Galatians, which he wrote before Romans? Circumcision and uncircumcision don't amount to a hill of beans. Neither one of them means anything. But I'll tell you what means something, a new creation. I'll tell you what means something, a faith that works within the dynamic sphere of unconditional love. That's the rule of the new Israel, the real Israel, not ethnic Israel, eschatological Israel, in which there are no Jews, no Greeks, even though there's lots of Jews and lots of Greeks. There's no distinction. So I'm getting a lot. I'm giving a lot to you tonight, but you can handle it and sort it out. In fact, the Holy Spirit will sort it out. So then. On the one hand, you have 
Gentile Christians looking through the lens of anti-Semitism. On the other hand, he curbs the hyperphenia or hyperephania of a group of Jewish Christians who show themselves to be above their Gentile Christian siblings by adherence to certain strictures of the Mosaic law. Chief of those was circumcision of the males and of the women circumcising their sons. And then calendrical observances or observances of days and feasts and festivals and new moons and monthly feasts and yearly and annual feasts and kosher eating habits. So Paul is in effect making the argument that he already made in Galatians, that circumcision and uncircumcision together amount to zero. But a faith that works by love or a faithfulness that participates in and manifests Jesus' own livingness by the Spirit. He also did this in another way in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 13. For as the body is one and has many parts, and all the parts of that body, though many, are one body, so also is Christ. For we were all baptized... Not in one water pond, but by one spirit. We were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. The one spirit in which we were all made to drink, or of which we are all made to drink, is the same spirit that God said he was going to put within his people in Ezekiel 36, 27, in order to cause them to walk in his ordinances and statutes. In other words, the indwelling spirit is what makes the Israel of God. The same spirit under whose guidance, Paul says, we walk, Romans 8, 4, and by whom the rectitude that's required by the law is not only fulfilled but exceeded. So here we're talking about a strictly ethnic Israel, in fact, as distinguished from an eschatological Israel. So here we're not talking about a strictly ethnic Israel determined by circumcision or adherence to the letter. Paul is talking about an eschatological Israel determined by the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he called in Colossians 2.11, the circumcision of Christ. What is the circumcision of, of Christ? It's the cross of Christ, whereby the flesh was put off as being anything at all, whether circumcision or uncircumcision, whether Jew or Greek, whether slave or free, whether of high class or low class, low born, high born, middle class, upper class, upper middle, all the rest of it. No such thing in Christ. Not even male and female. Male and female were undistinguished when Adam and Eve sewed the same fig leaves together. They were the same and undistinguished under sin. Same in Christ. Undistinguished. No male or female in Christ. That's what that means. It means other things. We'll get, it, get to it down the road. So, let's get... Let's aim small now and miss small. Romans 11, 11, and we'll, we'll stop here, but I wanna, I've gone big. You notice I started big and gone smaller. Verse 10 verses of Romans, now Romans 11, 11. He asks another rhetorical question, like the one posed in Romans 11, 1. In 11, 1, he says, God hasn't forsaken his people whom he foreknew, has he? And he says, hell no, or meganoito. God has not rejected his people, has he? Of course not. In Romans 11, 11, he does it again. He asks another rhetorical question that demands an emphatic negation for an answer, an emphatic no. Here he says, I, Paul, say they have not tripped in order to fall down permanently or to stay down, have they? That's what some people assume. He says they have not tripped in order to fall down permanently or to stay down, have they? In both cases, Romans 11.1, 1, and here where he hits second gear in 11.11, he answers with the emphatic no, which in the Greek text appears as me genoito. Unequivocally, not. The thought is unthinkable. 
God remains faithful, in other words, in the face of human infidelity. God remains faithful, including the infidelity of a majority in Israel. He cannot deny himself his own fidelity. 2 Timothy 2.13, Romans 3.3 3 and 4. Israel's stumbling, therefore, does not result in a fall from which they never get up. But they never get up on their own. God raises them up. He's able to do so. And he will do so. And he has done so when he raised up his son, Jesus Christ, who is the Israel of God, as well as the God of Israel. Now, to assume otherwise is to be influenced by anti-Semitism, a toxic and infectious form of bitter hatred that has taken root among at least one member of the House of Representatives of the United States of America and gone viral. And I mean viral in the sense of a sickening virus. So the apostle to the Gentiles now speaks to the Gentiles. Consider the totality of Romans 11, the verse 11. So I, Paul, say they have not tripped in order to fall down permanently, have they, like some of you think? Of course not. On the contrary, by their transgression. Huh. By their trans. What's the next word? You can say it. Go ahead. Pretend we're a Pentecostal church. By their transgression, what? What has come to the Gentiles? You mean Romans 9 through 11 is a soteriological masterpiece? A universal one? It says, there, by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles. But then it's not to forsake Israel. It's to turn around and provoke Israel to jealousy. So he uses Israel's fall to save the Gentiles. And then the saved Gentiles have something that the Jews now want. Notice the word salvation. Again, the salvific purpose of God in Christ is being forwarded now in history through Israel's temporary fall. This salvific purpose is not just for the salvation of the Gentiles, however. It's also for the salvation of all Israel. See, if you shoot this exegetical arrow to 1126, it says, and so all Israel will be saved. So Israel falls so that the Gentiles can be saved, so that the, all Israel can be saved. You see, it's a snowball going downhill. You can't stop it. It's God's saving grace. He can't be anything other than love, and so he can do nothing other than love. And he can do nothing other than show mercy that rejoices over judgment because Jesus Christ crucified was judged for all humankind. So then, all I'm doing through Romans is showing you that, yes, Paul is talking about the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ, and it pans out in every single word, in every single verse, and I've already translated every single word and every single verse in Romans, and I'm going to publish the translation. And you'll even know where the missionary opponent was talking. You'll know where Paul was talking. you know where the righteousness of faith is talking, and where Paul is talking against the mere righteousness of faith in the righteousness of God. You'll see it all. So, in closing then, fifth gear. In Romans 11, 1 to 6, there's the remnant and the rest that are hardened temporarily. It's the remnant that sanctifies the rest. In the next 10 verses, the sense of the same concept is reflected in the metaphors of the first fruits. The first fruits make sure that the whole batch of dough is sanctified. The root sanctifies the whole tree. So the remnant and the rest, the first fruits and the whole batch, and the root and the branches are three ways of Paul saying the whole are saved because of the part. And ultimately, the part that's the whole is Jesus Christ. Now, look at this. this is, I, I wish I could do this tonight, but I can't. i got to save it. But look what the next verses say. In verse 12, if their misstep 
their misstep, the same thing he uses for Adam's misstep. By one man's misstep or transgression, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, his true steps all the way to Calvary, the many or all were made righteous. Here, by their misstep, Israel's misstep in history, if their misstep is bringing riches to the world and their defeat, speaking prophetically for Paul, historically for us, A.D. 70, the defeat of Israel of Jerusalem by Titus of Rome, their defeat means riches for the Gentiles. That's the riches of Christ and salvation. How much more will their fullness bring? Pleroma is the word, meaning how much more will their eschatola, if their historical fall brought riches to the whole world? What do you think their fullness is going to mean? Which means Paul assumes there's going to be a fullness, the total salvation of Israel. What do you think that's going to mean? If billions of Gentiles are saved because of Israel's fall, what's going to happen when Israel restores and saves all of Israel? What's going to happen to the whole world? Well, it'll be transfigured. You can be guaranteed of that. Notice what the next verse says. But now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. He yelled at the Jewish Christians before. Now he's yelling at the, at the Gentile Christians. In view of the fact that I am the apostle to the Gentiles, that was settled in Jerusalem with James and John and Peter and Paul. I am magnifying or expanding the effect of my, the reach of my ministry. If by so doing, I might provoke my flesh or fellow Israelites to jealousy and save some of them. You know, it's a miracle that some are saved in the evil age. All will be saved in the eschaton. What's amazing is that some are saved in the evil age as a remnant. Paul wants to say, Paul knows he's not going to save all of mankind. He knows he's not going to bring all the nations to the obedience of faith, but he knows that his ministry is going to bring the obedience of faith in all the nations as a prolepsis of the day when all the nations, all humanity comes to a total allegiance to Jesus Christ and genuflects the knee and acknowledges a pledge of allegiance to him. What is, what is he saying here? Look at this, verse 15, tracks to run on. Where you see, if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Now, where have we seen this reconciliation of the world before? How about 2 Corinthians 5.19? God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Israel's rejection means the reconciliation of the world. What's Paul saying? He's back to the crucified Christ again. It's not the rejection of Israel. It's the rejection of Israel's representative, Jesus Christ. The fact that Israel rejected the true Israel, which is Jesus Christ, led to the salvation of Israel. The rejection of their Messiah on the cross led to their salvation. How, I, this is inarticulate. I can't say this. It, the grace is so spectacular here that it's almost unlawful to utter it. The answer that we have seen this before is that God was in the rejected and crucified, resurrected and rectified Christ, reconciling the world to himself. The rejection of Israel, therefore, is linked to the rejection by Israel of their Messiah. And so you have two things working here. God rejecting Israel in history and God accepting Israel eschatologically. But you also have Israel rejecting God in history by rejecting his Messiah, and then all Israel accepting his Messiah in the eschaton. And so God makes all this to work for the good, not only to those that love God, but that means all humanity. That's the next thing I'm going to show you in Romans 8, another big, another kind of a big deal, Romans 8, 28. So when Israel universally accepts Jesus as Messiah... 
It will be life from the dead, which means you can expect when the resurrection happens, that's when all Israel accepts Jesus as their Messiah, bows the knee, not to the God of this age, but to the Lord of the ages, which is Jesus Christ, bows the knee to him, pledges allegiance to him with a spirit-given pledge. Remember, Paul is climbing toward a peak here. In Romans 11.32, God shows mercy to all, including Israel, who in their disobedience and defiance and rejection of God were shut up by God, closed in, in other words, along with disobedient Gentiles in order for them all to be saved according to God's mercy. And God's mercy can be to all because his judgment was on one, Jesus Christ, the root the first fruits, the Israel of God and the God of Israel in one person. Jesus Christ constitutes the true Israel of God. He constitutes what is true humanity, not the first man, the second man. So he embodies all of true humanity, but he also embodies in him bodily is all of divinity. All that can be called God is in him bodily. All that can be called true humanity is in him bodily. All that is true Israel is in him bodily. Jesus Christ now at the right hand of the Father is the personification of the reconciliation of God with mankind. He exists as that. That exists now in a person. That's what I mean by the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's good news. That's what you shout from the housetops. That's what you find in the closet of your study. And you shout from the housetops. I discovered it in the closet of my study. I'm shouting it now from the housetops. And that's enough for tonight. Because some of you can't even hear anymore. I pierced your eardrums. Sorry. Thank you, Father. I thank you. I just thank you. I just don't even know how to put it into words anymore except to say thank you. Ten lepers were cleansed. We happen to be the one that comes back to say thanks. Every time someone comes to hear the word of God, to grow in grace and in the knowledge of their Savior, Jesus Christ, they're one in ten cleansed lepers. Jesus in his humanity says, where are the nine? I've been asking that question for 30, 40 years now. Where are the rest? Well, thank God for the one that returned and said thank you. That's all we're doing, returning and saying thank you. We thank you, Father, for this another opportunity to have the light of the glory of the knowledge of God that shines in the face of the man Christ Jesus shine out from his face into our hearts. What a glorious privilege. Father, grant me, I ask individually as a pastor, before this congregation of which I am a member, I ask you to grant me articulation for these inarticulable truths. They are so unspeakable that it would take a miracle of your spirit to be able to articulate them carefully and in a way that grants understanding. I ask for that articulation of the mystery of God boldly as I ought. And now we thank you for the privilege of 